Welcome friends, you're listening to a very special edition of Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. Today is December the 18th, 2020, and it marks the birthday of two very special people. Michael Moorcock himself, and, of course, by cosmic coincidence, my partner Phil. It's also seven days till Crimbo. So, for that very reason, and we don't need much of an excuse, we can stuff cake in our gobs, drink copious amounts of weird booze, and wish Mike and Phil a riotously happy birthday. And a happy birthday to anyone else out there too, that shares today as theirs, or indeed at any point in this, or any other future, when you happen to listen to this on your birthday, by some strange coincidence. Right, on that confusing note, on this show we have a bumper slate. Phil and I will be covering a Moorcock short story that overlaps into one of her big areas of passion, Sherlock Holmes. I'll hook up with long-time Moorcock aficionado and friend of the show, The Pastor, a.k.a. Jason, as we look at the appeal of Moorcock and how it crosses political, spiritual and other divides. We'll have some Moorcock-inspired music from Cernus. More on that later. First up, though, some messages. Starting with artist and designer of the Breakfast in the Lewins logos and banners, Simon Perrins. Hi there, I'm uh, looking at the um, January 1985 uh, edition of Imagine magazine. It's number 22. uh, On on page 22, you've got the interview with Michael Moorcock. It's a Michael Moorcock special. Um, Imagine, is Elric you in your younger days? Moorcock, yes, I think so. A horribly exaggerated and romanticised version of an adolescent. Uh, So... If my spurious logic holds out, that means not only is it Michael Moorcock's birthday, but it's also Elric's. So happy birthday, both of them. Hey, Mike, this is Jim from Dreaming City Books, wishing you a fantastic birthday and many, many more. Hi, this is Ralph Lovegrove, and I do a podcast called Fitchplasm, and I'm really honoured to be asked to record a birthday message for um, both Phil and Michael Moorcock. I hope everyone's had a happy birthday, and that you're all suitably fed and watered and in the best company you could hope for. So I'm going to say a couple of things. First, I came to my favourite fiction in my 20s rather than my teens, which I think is maybe a bit unusual. Um, A lot of Moorcock fans have anecdotes about growing up with them in their teens. Um, In my teens, I was reading the mainstream fantasy like Eddings and the Dragonlance novels, Tolkien, obviously. And, you know, no disrespect to some of those authors, but not really for me. Most of my fantasy reading was primary world fantasy horror. Um, Clive Barker is a prime example. But at the end of my second university year, I discovered three things I loved. Um, 1970s David Bowie, Tilda Swinton in Orlando, uh, but, you know, Tilda Swinton, and Michael Moorcock, which I discovered in the early 90s Millennium Omnibus editions. So I don't want to sound like a gushing fanboy, but this was the first adult secondary world fantasy that really clicked for me. And it's certainly due to the scope of the wider multiverse, this cosmological approach to world building that I previously, I think, only found in horror like 
like Barker and Lovecraft, uh, in my own reading chronology. And just an aside, I've started a project to reread the early 90s collections in sequence through the 14 volumes, and as well as the stories which I know well, each volume has a preface written by Michael Moorcock, as well as new art, and I've really enjoyed these as a, a time capsule and retrospective. But moving on, the other thing I want to mention is the contribution to the British New Wave coming out of New Worlds. And aside from Moorcock, my favourite authors include um, J.G. Ballard, Christopher Priest, M. John Harrison, John Brunner. I wasn't even born in the 1960s, so I've no idea what that scene was like. All I know about it comes from um, Wikipedia and the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. And I'm sure all these other authors would have found a way without New Worlds, but it kind of makes sense that you know several of my favourite authors found themselves in that orbit. So empirically, my own reading has been massively enriched by New Worlds and Michael Moorcock years later. And that's really a legacy worth celebrating too. So happy birthday, Mr Moorcock, and thank you for everything. Hi, it's Neil Burton here. Thanks, Andrew, for giving me this slot to say happy birthday to Michael Moorcock. I'm one of the art team, uh, only in Inca, but we tried to do the Chinese agent in the 80s and we failed to finish it disastrously. Uh, but now I'm one of the ones who is uh, trying to shake up the original crew and hopefully we'll get it finished for Mike's next birthday. Uh, all the best. Happy birthday. Well, 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 here we are. We are back in Actual Darian Toms, not virtual, because we're both in the actual same room. We are. Which is lovely. And it's a particularly special day in Darian Toms because it's Phil's birthday. Hello. <laughs> Happy birthday, Phil. You've Thank spent you. the day opening lots of lovely presents from lots of lovely people. You've We just got the shit scared out of us just as we were about to uh, start recording because somebody knocked on the front door a few feet away from us and you got a lovely delivery of flowers. Absolutely beautiful. Mm, very nice. But of course, it's not just your birthday. We also know it's someone else's birthday as well. Absolutely. Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to say, happy birthday, Michael. Yeah. Wishing you hope you're having a lovely day as well. Yeah. Happy birthday, Michael. And thanks for everything, as always. Happy birthday, Tom Cruise. Hope you're having a break from shouting at all your crew members <laughs> and bollocking them all for being not COVID safe. But at least you're making the next Mission Impossible for me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You are you are a Mission Impossible mark, aren't you, babe? I certainly am. Yeah, but of course, worry here because it's a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast, not a Tom Cruise flavoured podcast. Maybe that's for next year. Maybe that's for 2021. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And uh, as per last year, the tradition that we established last year, is it tradition if you've only ever done it once before? Maybe we'll make it tradition by doing it again. Yes. Yeah, we're going to make it tradition by doing it again. So we've uh, we've had some pot and lemonade. We've eaten a load of crisps. We've watched some telly. We've not had our three-course dinner like we had last year. No, well, obviously, being in tier three, that goes against us, unfortunately. Mm. Unfortunately, lockdown has messed with one element of our tradition, which is uh, to have an enormous slap-up dinner and a couple of bottles of wine. And then go back to our four-poster room in the in the, uh, the Bagdale Hall Hotel in Whitby. Sadly, not this time. No. But we'll save that up for next time. But we've chosen a short story again, just like we did last year. But this time, we're sticking with Moorcock. Last year we did The Tower of the Elephant, Robert E. Howard, didn't we? Yes, which I really enjoyed. 
the first one I had ever read hmm. by Robert E. Howard, and yeah. I did. I did enjoy it. Yeah, well, I think we'll revisit Robert E. Howard at some point. But right now, we're, we're back with Mr. Moorcock. And what story are we going to read? So, I'm really excited because I'm an avid reader, and I'll read anything, and people give me stuff, and I love it. But my heart started with Sherlock Holmes. So... When Andy suggested Sherlock Holmes' story that Michael had written, I was just all over that. And it's called The Adventures of the Dorset Street Lodger. Mm. So, apparently this was originally privately printed as a chapbook for David Shapiro and Joe Piggott in 1993, and first collected in book form in The Improbable Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, edited by John Adams for Nightshade Books in 2009. Now, I'd love a copy of that, because Nightshade Books are a fantastic publisher. You know all those amazing William Hope Hodgson yes. volumes that oh, have got the beautiful yeah. hardbacks with like the gilt design? They, that, that was Nightshade Books. Sadly, I only ever got three of those. The other two are, oh, go for three or four hundred quid now. Hundreds of pounds, mm. yeah. But they're a great press, Nightshade Books. So, yeah, that's what we're going to cover. So, why Sherlock Holmes? What is it about Sherlock Holmes that you've always enjoyed oh. so much? Because you are a Sherlock Holmes super fan. When I was young, I used to love on a Friday afternoon or weekend watching black and white movies. And I think, obviously, we came across a few Sherlock Holmes. I am still a huge fan of Basil Rathbone. Mm. And then in the 80s, I mean, my love started then and it just continued. And then in the 80s, I believe it was the 80s with Jeremy Brett, who I thought was a fantastic Holmes. Mm. And there has been one or two good ones since. But I will always remain a fan. Mostly, the ones I've seen have been pretty good. Yeah. Obviously, I love the books as well. But it's always given me an interest in, like, it's like who done it, and yeah. obviously the way that he solves things. Yeah, you love your detective fiction all around, don't massively. You? Yeah, mm. and I think it always started with mm. Sherlock. Yeah, there's a few. You get a few things there in Sherlock Holmes, don't you? You get, it's it's uh, it's a buddy cop drama almost isn't it i mean they're not cops but you know what i mean yeah it's it's, it's a buddy setup which makes it interesting because you've got the the character interplay between the two characters the eccentric and the straight man you know they're all you know which is a, a key formula for all sorts of things including comedy and all sorts of other bits and pieces and it's right there fully formed in i don't know the 1880s when did he start when he write him 1880s 1890s whatever it was it's and, it, and it's, it's it's fully formed and it works and the relationship's really great but I'm going to put you on the spot. You've mentioned Basil Rathbone. You've mentioned Jeremy Brett. And of course, I think about three or four years ago, we went on a massive summer binge watching loads of Sherlock Holmes movies. We did. Ian Richardson. Yeah. We watched the BBC um, series with... Half of it was Peter Cushing. Half of it was another guy whose name I've forgotten. We watched the... Um, Michael Caine. Yeah, the, the comedy, <laughs> which, which I really enjoyed. Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley. Yeah. We watched um, the Seven Percent Solution with Nicole oh. Ki- Nicole Williamson. Yeah. No, this is Nicole Kidman. Um, Nicole Williamson, Sherlock Holmes. We watched the Ian Richardson ones. We watched the Russian ones. Russian, yeah. You got the Russian ones on DVD, which were really, really good. Even though it was kind of plainly obvious when you went to Two Two One Baker Street, it just simply wasn't an English street. <laughs> but it was still really, really fantastic. Then there was the American, obviously with Downey Jr. Oh, the movies. Yeah, the the guy the. Guy Ritchie. Yeah, Guy Ritchie. Yeah, I think I blocked them out of my memory. But you quite <laughs> enjoy them, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. They they the light hearted. Yeah. And obviously, then you have Benedict Cumberbatch with yeah. the modern modern take, yeah. which again 
I kind of didn't mind too much. Yeah, but and obviously not as good as the Johnny Lee Miller one. Oh, Elementary. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I can't watch it. <laughs> oh, I haven't watched any. Yeah, I think that's Johnny Lee Miller, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, they're really, really bad. Right, favourite Sherlock Holmes. Go. Basil Rathbone. Basil Rathbone, nice. Favourite Sherlock Holmes movie or episode? Ooh. I do have a huge soft spot for The Hound of the Baskervilles. Which one? There's been many. Ooh. Not the Benedict Cumberbatch. That was very disappointing. I'm, I'm probably actually thinking, if I'm now you've put me on the spot, that I would go for the Peter Cushing's with... The Hammer film. Yeah. Yeah. With the... Uh, the bad guy was... Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is a really good one. It's really super atmospheric. Yes. That's another one of the ones we watched that summer. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go slightly... Um, um, I'm not as big a Sherlock Holmes fan as you are. No. There, there were two Sherlock Holmes movies that weren't based on Conan Doyle short stories, which were about Jack the Ripper. There was one with John Neville, which was a little bit stayed, but it was all right. But mm. my favourite Sherlock Holmes is Murder by Decree, with Christopher Plummer and yes. um, James Mason. Yes. And uh, it's basically Jack the Ripper and Freemasonry, and I absolutely adore that. I would watch that any day of the week. Okay, maybe Christopher Plummer's not the world's greatest Sherlock Holmes. He's pretty good. He's okay. But I'm, I'm going to go with Christopher Plummer and Murder by Decree. Yeah, that's my, that's my choice. That's my selection. And I'm sure that everybody out there has got their own favourites for different reasons. I'm sure they will. And it's just reminded me, I'm looking across the room at the moment at the Russian DVD box set. We never watched them all and we never did watch the Russian Hound of the Baskervilles. Which, strange oh. fun fact... Who is the Queen's favourite Sherlock Holmes? The Russian guy. <laughs> no way. <laughs> apparently, is it? apparently so. Yeah. Maybe we should watch it tonight. Yeah. Well, maybe we should. We need a birthday movie, don't mm. we? So after we've uh, after we've done this, because of course, as is tradition, we're going to get another um, large pot and lemonade. And uh, by the way, we haven't toasted. Oh. Have we to your birthday? Cheers. Cheers. There's the sound, the massive clunk <laughs> of a of two pint tiki glasses full of pot and lemonade. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. happy birthday to everybody who shares this special day. Absolutely. Happy birthday to Mike, happy birthday to Phil, happy birthday to Tom Cruise, and happy birthday to anybody else out there who shares today this birth as their birthday. And actually, happy birthday to anybody who happens to listen to this episode on their birthday, whatever day that may be. Absolutely. On that confusing note, we're going to um, take a break, and we're going to read The Adventure of the Dorset Street Lodger, and come back and have a quick chinwag about it. Right, I'll see you all soon. All right, cool. I'll see you again. Well, in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're back. We've done our homework. Have you done your homework? Certainly have, and Do- it was a very enjoyable story, I have to say. Yeah, you've done your birthday homework. It's terrible me giving you homework on your birthday, isn't it? Well, it's become the norm. <laughs> well, it has. I've done it two years running now, so it is now the norm. Expect it for the rest of our lives. <laughs> no! <laughs> so, anyway, we, we've polished off our bottle of, what was it? Uh, Taylor's Late Bottled Vintage Port 2016. 
which makes it sound really, really posh. Mm. But it's basically supermarket port in it. Of the nicer variety. Of the nicer. And uh, it was delicious. So what have you got now? I have got a Floris Foinbois fruit beer. Okay. And I have, I forgot what I've got, <laughs> Black 8-Ball uh, Black IPA, which is a rather cheeky 7%, so it's at the stronger end of these type of beers that I generally tend to drink, but let's give it a quick go. Ooh. That's quite an aggressive 7%, actually. Is it? But it's 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 not too bad. This is 3.6. Yeah. What a girl. And it just tastes sugar. No, 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 it's not too bad. Right. You picked it, though, remember? Well, yeah. I had to get you some fruit beer, didn't I? <laughs> so, we've, uh, we've done our own work. So, uh, The Adventure of the Dorset Street Lodger by Moorcock. Now, I'm just going to read a little bit of the introduction, because I really like this introduction. It was one of those singularly hot Septembers when the whole of London seemed to wilt from overexposure to the sun, like some vast Arctic sea beast foundering upon a tropical beach and doomed to die of unnatural exposure. Where Rome or even Paris might have shimmered and lazed, London merely gasped. Our windows wide open to the noisy stillness of the air and our blinds drawn against the glaring light, we lay in a kind of torpor, Holmes stretched upon the sofa while I dozed in my easy chair and recalled my ears in India when such heat had been normal and our accommodation rather better equipped to cope with it. I really love that introduction and I get really like sort of nice warm racket feelings. It reminds me of... Uh, living with Ferthy <laughs> in the early 2000s in summer when we were between jobs and just kind of lazing around one so him on a sofa or me on a sofa and the other in the armchair in our haze that we would be in in those days and the sunshine outside that we couldn't really cope with <laughs> and we would just laze around in that room and we probably did that for I don't know on and off the thick end of two years so this is this is one of the things uh, I instantly like about this setup is you've got Holmes and Watson who, when they're not on, on a case or when Watson's not attending to a patient, they're basically just lazing around on sofas in an armchair, smoking pipes, and and staying out the sun, which is effectively what we did in those years, although without probably the more constructive purposes of solving crimes and looking after patients, even though I did on and off. But lots and lots of pipe smoking and lazing about on surfers. Yeah, I really, 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 really like that image. It's great. But it's interesting that we're both supposed to be going away on holiday, but yeah. couldn't because of work. Yeah. And yet, they, as you say, they were both languishing about. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the setup, isn't it? They're, they're supposed to have been going on a holiday in the summer, going for some seaside air or whatever. Um, but the cat, because Watson has got... Fishing. Yeah. Watson's thinking about going fishing to the Dales or whatever it is. Um, but the cat go because Watson's got a patient who's um, approaching delivery of a child and uh, Holmes, he's um, kind of ruminating over the assassination of uh, Prince Ulrich, which uh, Ul Prince Ulrich, well, that's a, a little, probably a little bit of Mocock um, <laughs> wordplay there because a Prince Ulrich, Graf Ulrich von Beck maybe, who knows in this world anyway, it's, that's not really elaborated But upon. why he couldn't do that on holiday, I find a bit... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he probably could have, uh, but he wanted to remain close to London for whatever reason. And there's, there's a really nice little bit in part of this setup where Holmes reads a note. Watson describes him, he finishes reading the note and he just drops it on the floor. He just loosely drops it on the floor, he doesn't put it on a table or anything like that. It's Holmes, he just, he just reads it, the moment he's done with it, he just lets go and it just drops to the floor, which is great. Probably expects Mrs Hudson to clear it up later. Yeah, absolute <laughs> poor Mrs Hudson. 
Poor Mrs. Hudson. We found out her cooking's not <laughs> not as good as someone else's shortly as well, yeah. which is great. So we learned that they have to turf out of 221B Baker Street for renovation works because Mrs. Hudson expected them to be on holiday. So she set up some... Yeah, she and, engaged peach, peach, peach and praise God. But also some redecorating as well. So. Yeah. Although I'm sure with his adventures and shooting holes into walls and <laughs> yeah. all his experiments, it probably needs decorating. Yeah, there's a nice little reference to that later on, isn't there, as well, which is quite amusing. Anyway, the pair decided they can't leave London um, as they intended. So they need uh, uh, an alternative lodging. It's really amusing because Holmes goes through this like deductive process of what to do about where to move for two weeks. And then the result is they just ask Miss Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> but you get, you get this big full paragraph of Holmes going through his deductive process. It's like, aha, we should ask Mrs. Hudson. <laughs> See if she knows anybody locally. Yeah. So, of course, they do that, and uh, she says Mrs. Aykroyd's place on 2 Dorset Street um, is ideal, and she recommends those lodgings, but she does tip them off that she's not overly impressed with Mrs. Aykroyd's Frenchified cooking <laughs> in inverted commas. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as it happens, uh, they quite like it. They like the Frenchified cooking. Yeah, because Frenchified means it's got some flavour. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> And uh, I, th- I think they refer to uh, how do they refer to Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Hudson's cooking? Somewhat plain. Yeah, it's got the word plain in it. So when they're talking about um, Mrs. Ackroyd, it says the good lady of solid Lancashire stock was clearly delighted at what she called the honour of looking after us, and we both agreed we had never experienced better attention. She had pleasant, broad features and a practical, no-nonsense manner to her, which suited us both. While I would never have said so to either woman, her cooking was rather a pleasant change from Mrs. Hudson's good plain fare. (laughs) (laughs) So they're getting a break from, I don't know, shepherd's pie or or whatever it is that she's feeding them. Yeah, but I suppose if he's worked over when he went over to serve, he'll be used to spices. Mm, mm. So he's come back to London to... Yeah, of course. Veteran of Afghanistan, etc. Yeah, so he's come back to probably boiled beef and sprouts or something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we found out during this period as well that this is post Reichenbach Falls incident. Yes. And Holmes is actually quite lively, isn't he? Because basically they just spend a few days tossing it off going to the theatre. <laughs> and Watson comments on how um, how Holmes uh, enjoys rather bass Cockney <laughs> Cockney music hall. Oh, the Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah, which, which Watson describes as like kind of Cockney music hall <laughs> yeah. with, with, with an element of disgust. Common, yeah. <laughs> That's that's an interesting thing as well, which I really enjoy about the um, the portrayal of Watson in this, because of course Watson is the narrator in all these stories, isn't it? Everything from Watson's point of view. Yes. And uh, well, we'll we'll get to that when we get to it. But we get some uh, some classic Holmes deduction as as the the business kind of picks up, and we realise that it's not just going to be twenty pages of Holmes and Watson going to watch Gilbert O'Sullivan or Gilbert and Sullivan. Gilbert O'Sullivan was the guy with the big. Hair on a piano in the seventies, wasn't he? So Gilbert yeah. and Sullivan, Gil- not Gilbert or Sullivan. I think I said Gilbert and Sullivan. You did, but I said Gilbert oh. or Sullivan. And going to the kinema. That's right, the kinema. And actually, it says here this is uh, this is the bit they mention the kinema. It says we were returning in the early evening to our temporary lodgings, having watched the kinema show at Madden Tussauds in Marylebone Road, when Holmes became suddenly alert, pointing his stick ahead of him and saying in that urgent murmur I knew so well, "What do you make of this fellow, Watson?" The one with the brand new top hat, the red whiskers, and a borrowed morning coat who recently arrived from the United States but has just returned from the northwestern suburbs where he made an assignation he might now be regretting. 
I chuckled at this. Come off it, Holmes, I declared. I could see a chap in a topper lugging a heavy bag, but how could you say it was from the United States and so on? I have no idea. I believe you're making it up, old man. Certainly not, my dear Watson. Surely you've noticed that the morning coat is actually beginning to part in the back seam, and is therefore too small for the wearer. The most likely explanation is that he borrowed a coat for the purpose of making a particular visit. The hat is obviously purchased recently, for the same reason while the man's boots have the gaucho heel characteristic of the southwestern United States. A style found only in that region, and adapted of course from a Spanish riding boot. I've made a study of human heels, Watson, as well as human souls. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is, you, you could totally imagine this dialogue and this presentation of Holmes in any TV show or any media adaptation. Absolutely. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not any kind of expert on, on Arthur Conan Doyle, or I've not really even, I have not read any Sherlock Holmes whatsoever, so all of my knowledge of Sherlock Holmes is purely based on media other than books. But this just feels like super, super authentic, with a little hint of playfulness, like the thing about him having made a study of Spanish heels. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was the thing, wasn't it, that he did go into huge descriptions about different things and yeah. learnt things like heels and cigarette brands and the type of ash they left as residue yeah. and yeah. There was this, a lot of it. This is the Holmes trope. Yes. Isn't it? This this yes. is he stands there and he just spouts off all of this deduction, which I think is still a, a really, really common trope in modern detective serials. It's just now you get stuff like Criminal Minds where they split the dialogue amongst eight different people and they all say a line each and go around the room, which obviously we've talked about before. Um, it, it continues. We kept an even distance behind the subject of our discussion. The traffic along Baker Street was at its heaviest, full of noisy carriages, snorting horses, yelling drivers and all of London's varied humanity pressing its way homeward, desperate to find some means of cooling its collective body. Our quarry had periodically to stop and put down his bag, occasionally changing hands before continuing. But why do you say he arrived recently and has been visiting northwest London? I asked. That, Watson, is elementary. If you think for a moment, it will all come clear to you that our friend is wealthy enough to afford the best in hats and Gladstone bags, yet wears a morning coat too small for him. It suggests he came with little luggage, or perhaps his luggage was stolen and he had no time to visit a tailor. Or he went to one of the ready-made places and took the nearest fit. Thus the new bag also, which he no doubt bought to carry the object he has just acquired. That he did not realise how heavy it was is clear, and I'm sure if he was not staying nearby he would have hired a cab for himself. He could well be regretting his acquisition. Perhaps it was something very costly, but not exactly what he was expecting to get. He certainly did not realise how awkward it would be to carry, especially in this weather. That suggests to me that he believed he could walk from Baker Street Underground Railway Station which in turn suggests he's been visiting north-west London, which is chiefly served from Baker Street. He's a real smart-ass, Holmes, isn't he? But I think that Watson just sees it as that is how he is. Yeah. It's how he, his brain works, how he, how he talks to people. His interactions have always been a bit hard. Yeah. But Watson has taken him warts and all, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it turns out this fella... As the follow him is also dodging at 2 Dorset Street. What a coincidence. And they also found out when they introduced themselves to him and tried to talk to him on the stairs. He's rather brusque and annoyed at their intervention. As he goes up the stairs, they spot something in his bag. A glint of silver, a glint of gold, a small hand. And uh, he's, he's not happy to be, uh, to be interrupted. And he says, be warned, gentlemen, I possess a revolver and I know how to use it. 
Holmes accepted this news gravely and informed the man that while he understood an exchange of pistol fire to be something of the nature of an introductory courtesy in Texas, in England it was still considered unnecessary to support one's cause by letting off guns in the house. This I found a little like hypocrisy from one given to target practice in the parlour. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that is when Holmes does say, mention Dr Watson and that get, grabs James's attention. That's right, once, once he realises who they are. His demeanour changes and uh, he realises that it is in fact Holmes and Watson and tells them that he's actually been to Baker Street to look for them. So his demeanour entirely changes and he agreed to have a drink in an hour because he's been seeking their services. And we found out a little bit about the case. So what is the case? He's James Macklesworth from Galveston, Texas and is in the UK, he's in England because... His cousin had been, he'd been corresponding with his cousin for several years and he had written to him to say that if in the in the case of his death if he would follow through with some specific requests with regards to an object that had been previously stolen Mm -hmm. so being an honorable man james decides to follow through with what his cousin who was sir sir jeffrey macklesworth uh, of the English aristocracy who lived in Oxfordshire. Mm. So that's how he ended up coming over and the item he was to pick up was an item that Mrs Galabaster, the housekeeper, was holding on to and he'd had to prove his identity and she had then given it to him. How she had it when it had been reported stolen several years ago remains quite a mystery but obviously James is feels quite awkward by all of this which is going on which is why he decided to call on Sherlock and mm. Dr Watson and because Sherlock and Dr Watson um well actually Dr Watson as well as, as Holmes are quite smarty pants they've already <laughs> identified it as the Fellini Perseus yeah. uh, uh, a solid silver and gold statuette which uh, is um, of terrific value yeah so this is the setup is we've got uh, the death of Sir Geoffrey, and on his death, his cousin James has been contacted, or was in fact contacted ahead of his death, to say if anything dodgy goes on, and if you die, get yourself to England, find Mrs... Galabaster. Galabaster, and uh, and pick up this thing and take it back to America post-haste. Ah. But to give a bit more history, of uh, Sir, Ge- Sir Geoffrey was one who... He was born into a lot of wealth. His father had created this great wealth but when Geoffrey came along he kind of squandered it he was he was quite easy prey for a lot of people he gave money to a lot of artists he loves art Mm -hmm. and I think that's where a lot of his money went and I think there was a lot of creditors at his death yeah so that's a bit of history of the family yeah and it sounds like James only found out that he was Related to this, when Sir Geoffrey started writing to him several mm. years ago. Mm. So, Mr. Macklesworth, James Macklesworth, has been to see Mrs. Galabaster and obtained the uh, the item, and he describes uh, the encounter. He says, well, it was a dingy house, rather of a kind I'm completely unfamiliar with, all crowded along a little road about a quarter of a mile from the station. Not at all what I'd expected. Number 18 was dingier than the rest, a poor sort of place altogether with peeling paint, an overgrown yard, bulging garbage cans, and all the kind of things you expect to see in East Side New York. 
not in a suburb of London. All this notwithstanding, I found the dirty knocker and hammered upon the door until it was opened by a surprisingly attractive woman of what I should describe as the octoroon persuasion. A large woman, too, with long but surprisingly well-manicured hands. Indeed, she was impeccable in her appearance, in distinct contrast to her surroundings. She was expecting me. Her name was Mrs. Gallibaster. I knew the name at once. Sir Geoffrey had often spoken of her in terms of considerable affection and trust. She had been, she told me, Sir Geoffrey's housekeeper. He had enjoined her, before he died, to perform this last loyal deed for him. He handed me a note he had written to that effect. And he passes this note to Holmes. So we had to look up Octoroon, didn't we? Yeah. An Octoroon is an old, out-of-use out, out of and um, probably what would be deemed an offensive term these days for one eighth, at least one-eighth black, or approximately one-eighth black or of African descent. And it actually comes up a little bit later because uh, Home, sorry, Watson has, has already made a judgment and jumped to a conclusion about Macclesworth and perhaps um, what might be behind it all. And it's probably a good time to talk about Watson because in media, especially in the Basil Rathbone stuff, which I think I'll kind of spun out from there, Watson is always, um, whilst he's easy to get quite... Um, kind of flustered. flustered about things. Yes. Is generally um, quite a kindly, almost grandfatherly presence, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. In later versions, perhaps is a little bit more staid, um, but always uh, a very stable character mm. and not one to jump to conclusions or, um, you know, kind of really import any great opinion on anything other than just to try and catch Holmes out by deducing something before Holmes does. I'm assuming this is Mocock building upon something that you actually get in the actual books. And, of course, the books and the stories are from the 1880s, 1890s, or whatever they're from. But it was like, if Holmes would ask Watson to do something, he would very much go with his own views, and he would believe that he was on the right track. And sometimes Holmes would very kindly kind of say, actually, you're totally wrong. Yeah. So. But we've got an interesting passage here, which... As the narrator actually expl- you know, citing his own language in a conversation with Holmes, as perhaps a slightly less patronly and fatherly and more judgmental, mm. um, because uh, Holmes says, "What do you make of it, Watson?" Holmes asked as he reached for his long-stemmed clay pipe and filled it with tobacco from the slipper he'd brought with him. <laughs> <laughs> do you think our Mister Macklesworth is the real article, as his compatriots would say? I was very favourably impressed, Holmes. But I do believe he has been duped into involving himself in an adventure which, if he obeyed his own honest instincts, he would never have considered. I do not believe that Sir Geoffrey was everything he claimed to be. Perhaps he was when you knew him, Holmes. But since then he has clearly degenerated. He keeps an octoroon mistress, gets heavily into debt, and then plans to steal his own treasures in order to preserve it from creditors. And and he's making the assumption that it's a mistress. Yeah. He's, he's instantly jumping to a conclusion or trying to deduce ahead of Holmes what the issue is, but in doing so, he's saying that the guy is something of a degenerate because he kept an octoroon mistress and maybe faked his own death to try and escape creditors. Yeah. Which is a, 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 pr- a pretty direct and judgmental thing, which you don't tend to get from Watson in other media. But I'm, I'm really interested now in reading the original Earth, Afcon and Doyle stories, just to kind of explore this. A little bit more. 
just because their thought processes are so very different. Yeah, and um, and, and Herms kind of disavows him of that notion pretty quickly, doesn't he? Yes. Um, he, he says, there's only one flaw there, Watson. Sir Geoffrey appears to have anticipated his own suicide and left instructions with her. Mr. Macklesworth identified the handwriting. I read the note myself. Mr. Macklesworth has corresponded with Sir Geoffrey for years and he confirmed that the note was clearly Sir Geoffrey's. So this appears to clear the housekeeper yes. of any wrongdoing. So anyway, they decide to jump on a train and head off to Sir Geoffrey's place to investigate. And it, here we get just another great example of how Moorcock is king of concise, descriptive narrative. And it's all on here. You get this description of this train journey. And obviously it's kind of tinged with Watson's love of the English countryside and everything else. But it's still really, really vivid and really descriptive. And, you know, whether Moorcock's describing a sea battle or um, the Camargue or any of these different things. In this, is just describing a train journey through Oxfordshire. And it's still just super vivid. It's like what we found last year with, with Robert E. Howard. Yeah. You've got such a short story confined into such a small number of pages. Yeah. But what he writes is just so colourful and yeah. in-depth and it draws you in. You feel like you're reading something that's a lot longer. Yeah. And th- there's a description of the, the lady who runs the post office, the proprietress of the post office. Mrs Beck. It's a handful of words. It says, Mrs Beck was a plump pink woman in plain print and a starched pinafore with humorous eyes and a slight pursing of the mouth which suggested a conflict between a natural warmth and a slightly censorious temperament. One sentence, and that woman is alive. That yeah. character is alive. It's absolutely fantastic. Gives you an idea of what she'd be like if you went into that shop. Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 you know, he probably did write this on the bog. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, he's just got that absolute talent where... One sentence and is conjured up a really vivid and rich character, almost effortlessly. I don't think he did it on the bog, though. Well, I think he put a lot of effort in to follow Sir Arthur and Conan Doyle. You want it to possibly, yeah, possibly. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being um, a little bit harsh. But you have read a lot more than I have, so yeah. you have a right to your opinion yeah. on that. So we anyway we get um, some more details regarding the housekeeper. And they return to London and have tea with Macclesworth. And not only is this uh, story wry and entertaining, and it's evocative. It's really evocative. It's also educational. Because they go back and have tea with Mr Macclesworth. And it says, Our ritual was overseen by the splendid Fellini Silver Witch, perhaps to catch the best of the light. Holmes had placed in our sitting room window, looking out onto the street. It was as if we ate our tea in the presence of an angel. Mr. Macclesworth balanced his plate on his knee, wearing an expression of delight. I have heard of this ceremony, gentlemen, but never expected to be taking part in a high tea with Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Indeed, you were doing no such thing, sir, Holmes said gently. <laughs> it is a common misconception, I gather, among our American cousins, that high and afternoon tea are the same thing. They are very different meals, taken at quite different times. High tea was, in my day, only eaten at certain seats of learning, and was a hot early supper. The same kind of supper, served in a nursery, has of late been known as high tea. Afternoon tea, which consists of a conventional cold sandwich selection, sometimes with scones, clotted cream and strawberry jam, 
is eaten by adults, generally at four o'clock. High tea, by and large, is eaten by children at six o'clock. The sausage was always very evident at such meals when I was young. Holmes appeared to shudder subtly. <laughs> I read that, I was thinking, oh, I didn't know that. No, I didn't. It was informative, but it was also like, all right, yeah. thank all you. All right, you fucking teenager. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an American. Yeah, but also while I was reading it, it did make me want afternoon tea. And but it also made me realise that that time we had afternoon tea at that really nice hotel in Scarborough, we probably had it two hours early, so that was poor form. Uh, we did. I think we had it about two o'clock. I think we did. Mm. I've got to say, though, if you have afternoon tea at four o'clock, what time do you have your property? Because, of course, now we're, now we're veering into that terrible you know, minefield of is it tea or is it dinner? We're northerners. Mm. So tea, dinner, it's tea to us, isn't it? So, to anybody here who's listening, perhaps, in America, there's this strange... There are all sorts of strange north-south, or even not even north-south divides in the UK about certain things like scones versus scones. It's scones, by the way. But in the north, where we're from, I'm from Old Fields from Grimsby, your evening meal at half past five or six o'clock or whatever is your tea. It is. Your dinner is what other people would know as your lunch. (laughs) Is it dinner time? Means is it about half twelve? But a lot of other people have their dinner at night. Yeah, yeah. So you know, pe- people who think the posh say <laughs> we're going for dinner, whereas we say we're off out for tea. <laughs> Hence, we are right. Yeah. Why don't you come around for tea? You mean dinner? Fuck off! You're not coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we roll in the north. And it's a scone. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, after the education about tea, basically, Holmes solves it, doesn't he? Holmes just sits back and says, oh, it's like this. Uh, and without wanting to kind of give it all away, well, we will. No, we won't. Shall we not give it away? Because it's a spoiler, isn't it? Even it though is. we spoil all Mocock books when we talk about them. But he's been back to get some evidence from Baker Street to, before mm. he came back. Yeah, because he knew Something. Sir Geoffrey from a club, didn't yes. he? And he's actually got... Um, some kind of uh, correspondence from Geoffrey kicking around in a drawer somewhere. So he's gone back. He's figured out actually the handwriting thing. Uh, there's uh, there's certainly something quite incorrect going on there. Yep. But to cut a long story short without spoiling it, the Fellini Perseus being in the window is basically Holmes has laid a trap for the culprit who does indeed turn up, climb up the trellis, get in the house, manages to stab Holmes with a bowie knife... Um, and then they chase him out the window and he falls to the pavement where he is uh, carried off to hospital. And everything is over and Holmes gets to very, very smugly outline what went down and it all makes perfect sense. We don't know if he died or not because Watson shot him yeah. and he fell out the window. Yeah. But there was no mention of... All there is is he was taken to hospital, isn't yeah. there? So unfortunately, poor James McElworth from Galveston, Texas finds out that He's not really related <laughs> to Sir Geoffrey at all, but the culprit behind it all basically exploited him to try and get the Fellini silver taken across the States where he could pick it up later on. And in fact, he never corresponded with Sir Geoffrey. No. It was all with the the arch-evil person. Yeah, so poor Macklesworth has to go back to Galveston, Texas, empty-handed, and he's not related to a rich English <laughs> aristocrat. The end. The end. Are I we... kind of dug it. Are we saying who it is or are we leaving that? Oh, I think we, we spoil all Mocock, 
don't we? By talking about an 160-page book for four and a half hours. Yeah. So maybe at some point people may well read this short story. And actually, we have read this short story. I mentioned earlier on where it was first published. It was published in the Nightshade Press edition. But we read this in um, a book called Sherlock, Over 80 Stories Starring the Greatest Detective of All Time, selected by Otto Penzler. And it's a ginormous hardback book of knocking on, oh, I don't know, almost 900 pages with 80 short stories in it. Turns out, I think we've got three copies of this now, because when I reordered another copy, it turned out I'd ordered one before, and then I realised that we couldn't find the other one and we needed a copy each, so I added another one. So we've now got three copies of this enormous breeze block of a book in the house. And uh, it's it's actually I, I quite enjoyed reading that, so I might actually have a, a route through, and uh, and read some more. Also, being a huge Holmes fan, yeah, that I absolutely love this, and I think that Michael did it absolute credit. Yeah, it was fabulous. I would I would recommend anybody to give it a read. Yeah, if they've whether they have or they haven't read any Holmes before. And I would recommend picking up this book as well. It's it's split into several sections. So there are short stories that have been around a long time and that have been reprinted many times. There are stories by all sorts of very well-known writers. Neil Gaiman, Anthony Burgess, A.A. Milne, P.G. Woodhouse. I'll definitely be reading the P.G. Woodhouse one. Kingsley Amis, August Derleth, weirdly enough. James Barry, who else we got? Stephen King, Poole Anderson. Yeah, now I'm actually looking at the uh, the list of the authors involved. I'll be reading a lot more of these. Some very renowned authors yeah. there. Uh, Colin Dexter, he's... No way! He's one of yours, isn't he? <laughs> he's Colin, not, but yeah. Who, who, who did Colin Dexter write? Moss. Moss, all right, yeah. Uh, Tanith Lee, another well-known, um, well-respected fantasy author. Manly Word Wellman. So yeah, well worth picking up. Well, if we find the third one, we'll have to give it away. If I can maybe think of a, a a decent question or something for Twitter, maybe we could. Uh, we've never done a competition before, have we? No. And we could post it to somebody. I'll think of something. I'll think of something. We'll post one of these copies to someone or other. So anyway, it's your birthday. We're having a lovely day. We've had a few nice drinks. At some point, we've got to think about what what we're going to do for tea. I almost said dinner. <laughs> oh, yeah. We can't go out and stay in a hotel and have a three course dinner. So we'll have to think of something, aren't we? But I'm glad we've done this again. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Especially with it being Sherlock themed. Yeah. And of course, in the new year, um, as the uh, the Twitterati voted, we'll be doing the Warhound and the World's Pain, won't we? We will. Absolutely. So we'll be delving a little bit into Von Beck. But for now, thanks very much for giving time on your birthday for us to do <laughs> this. I think we always enjoy it, don't we? We do. And thank you, Michael, for writing this and once again happy birthday yep happy birthday mike and now for a few more birthday messages kicking off with robert mcmillan phil happy birthday from martha's vineyard massachusetts i'm an ardent admirer of your and Andy's work on this podcast, and I appreciate the mix of views that you bring to Michael Moorcock's writing, themes, plots, and style. When we're safe to venture out, I'll be happy to make the trip overseas, 
And I can confidently say drinks on me. Take care, be safe, and thanks for everything that you do. And happy birthday, Michael. I came to your books just shy of 14. I was an American boy on his first trip abroad and on his own. I found some of your novels in my cousin's library in Germany, a welcome and warm current of English in a sea of German, a language I had yet to learn fluently. I took Oswald Bastable and Coram with me from Stuttgart to Hamburg to Berlin and back, imagining myself on their journeys even as I took your pages into my mind on second-class train seats on the Deutsche Bahn. Those days and your words never left me. They take me backward and forward in time, and I'm grateful for the ride. Hi, Michael. Hussein here from Andy's Breakfast in the Ruins podcast. Just wanted to wish you a very happy 81st birthday. Now, I know traditionally the person whose birthday it is is supposed to have a birthday wish, but in case you're struggling, I do have my own wish to recommend. I wish to know whether your prophecies in the final program were as a result of A. A coincidence B. A mighty crystal ball that you might possess or C. A butterfly effect sort of deal where you might have whispered into people's ears over the years as a means to influence the future. I'm going with C. I think that's how David Icke came to be convinced by shape-shifting lizards controlling the world. But it would be great if you could confirm in one way or the other before your 82nd birthday. Happy birthday once more. Hi. Nathan here from Corum, an upstarting rock project inspired by the works of Michael Moorcock. I just wanted to wish the Lord of Chaos himself a very happy birthday. Thank you endlessly for the years of inspiration that has profoundly impacted the literary genre as a whole, and of course, the music. Now I'm going to perform for you live a very, very short piece inspired by the Albino Emperor and a certain black sword. Happy birthday, Michael Moorcock, and blood and souls for Arioch. birthday breakfast in the ruins with a steely handshake and a grim smile over the fields of the fallen from lord samper of lord samper's library keep doing what you're doing keep traversing those moonbeam roads you're the only man who can Birthday wishes, take two. Let's forget about take one. That never happened. Anyway, happy birthday, Mike and Phil. I hope you both have the best day and are thoroughly spoiled rotten. Mike, thank you so much for all the great books that you've that I've read of yours over the last well, forever. And but thank you most of all for breaking it to me that the best thing a hero can do is just kick the bucket and let the world get on with it. And Phil, your lessons on her- on heroism have yet to become clear, but thank you for sending me that copy of Wizardry and Wild Romance. I remain forever in your debt, Lord Sampa. Um, um, um.
Okay, we're we're back and we're back in virtual Derry and Toms, and I've got a very special guest with me at the moment, Jason, aka the Pastor, who when I first kicked this podcast off, well, a little bit over a year ago now, um, he was one of our chief encouragements on Twitter. Um, we bumped into each other as one does in the uh, in the Twitter sphere and exchanged some conversations and ideas, and he was very very much popped up as a hardcore Moorcock geek <laughs> and there's a lot of us about welcome to the show hey thank you so much uh what a what a joy i love that this exists today um and good good to meet you good to put a face to the name and a voice um what a fun time we live in 2020 is not all bad no uh, I, I was only saying to my partner the other day we were having a conversation about this and, and had this um, pandemic occurred 20 years ago when the internet couldn't cope with things like um, HD video and uh, audio conferencing and all those other bits and pieces. It would, I think it would have been a tougher time somehow, although probably it would have given me more time to read books, so it wouldn't have been the end of the world. I agree. I started off this year, starting in March, my reading level went up. Lately yeah. it's been a little busy, but yeah, it's it's... Technology keeps us more connected. It's a good. It's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you were very um, kind and kind enough to uh, record uh, a birthday message for Mister Mocock himself last year when we did our birthday episode. Because of course we found that Phil's birthday coincides with Michael Mocock's birthday, which is one of those strange pieces of synchronicity that occurred right. when we started doing right. this. Um, and I think what was immediately apparent from interacting with you on twitter is in many many ways we are diametric opposites i suspect uh, that we are thank you yeah well phrased well yeah. phrased um and you know obviously we, we won't go into any detailed um rows about politics or anything like that but no, i think from I... my perspective i probably consider myself well by uk standards i suppose i'm left of center and verging I... on socialist in some ways and i'm an atheist um, okay however from your perspective, I'm a conservative Christian pastor in the United <laughs> yeah. States. I, I um, uh, le- definitely lean conservative. I don't consider myself alt right or hard right. Yeah. Just as something in, if I can just make a stat- passing statement about uh, current political situations, you win some, you lose some. Mm. Um, you know conservatives win that conservatives lose i think we're better for the balance i'm not one of these hard people that believes that we must always win or burn the country down yeah yeah i lean conservative uh that doesn't mean that i think the opposite side of the aisle is the bad guys and and, uh i i hope we can challenge each other but yes uh, i am i am conservative libertarian that tends to go in the u.s pretty strongly together and i'm uh definitely a very very devout christian i would say yeah. So yeah, in that sense, we are different. Isn't isn't Michael Moorcock's writings uh, writings amazing? That he can take two people like you and me that may not have a whole lot in common in other ways, mm. but if we were sitting across the table with a cup of coffee, I know that we could go for hours and mm. not notice those other differences because he's got such a wide volume of work and there's so much there that we can read into and agree about Um, because it's not just entertainment. Some of the books are certainly entertaining, but they're so thought provoking. Mm. Um, 
conversations about what he's doing in the eternal champion or between the wars seems very mm-hmm. poignant right now the you know the fourth book jerusalem commands and the and the rise of mussolini mm-hmm. man i think both sides of the aisle have room to talk about what is mike communicating i love I, I I love that he can pe- bring people together for those conversations. Yeah, and and that's the wonderful thing about this experience for me is um, I, I, I started doing this because I wanted a hobby, but one of the things which I didn't necessarily expect was to be connected with such a wide variety and array of of people from all over the world who who share the same passion and and have the same enjoyment and share the same admiration for Michael Moorcock. So this is this was a perfect opportunity. This is why I thought it would be a really good idea just for us to to get together and just ruminate on the appeal of oh, Michael Moorcock. But let's I just th- think about you for a second. I've I've talked for sixteen or seventeen episodes <laughs> about all this stuff now. So and they're how, wonderful. How, how did yeah? How did how did you connect? Well, thank you. But how did you connect with first of all fantasy? Oh, and and yeah. then Moorcock specifically. So. Fantasy was easy for me because, but it might have been hard for my mom. Um, my mother is quite the science fiction fan. She has the original TV guy that said, "Hey, there's this new TV show coming out called Star Trek," and she's got that. So I remember when I was kindergarten, first grade, passing through the living room, and my mom was flipping through the channels and said, "Oh, it's Doctor Who. Jason, sit down. You'll love it." <laughs> um, I think maybe. Empire Strikes Back was the first movie I saw in the theater. I would have been five or six. Um, so my mom is a huge science fiction fan, Lord of the Rings, and and raised me on that. Narnia was how she, I, I learned to read. I did learn to read before I went to school. Um, my mom started reading to me The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and by the time that we got to the last battle, I was reading them to her. So... On the one hand, my mom is is quite the science fiction fan. My dad is a retired now, very conservative, a little more old school Christian conservative preacher. And his dad was a traveling uh, evangelist, fire and brimstone revivalist. So um, grandpa was, was very, um, very old school. Mm. My father is pretty traditional in a lot of ways. Uh, I, uh, just as an aside, I didn't intend on going into ministry. That uh, I'm a certified registered locksmith. I <laughs> I dodged the pulpit for as long as I could, but it's kind of in the blood. And by the yeah. time I hit around the age of thirty, my dad came to me one day and said, "You're you're wasting your time doing other things when clearly this is where you're you're called." And I fought it a bit and disagreed a bit and but but here we are Mm. um so my mom raised me on a very healthy dose of science fiction uh in fact if anything i got in trouble that i was reading science fiction so much my grades were suffering uh (laughs) in seventh grade my parents threatened to put me back in sixth grade if i didn't quit reading a sci-fi novel per day and i'm one of the few people i know that got punished for reading too much. Um, In seventh grade, uh, the local library was fantastic. I would would ride my bike down to the local library, East Northport, New York. um, And, oh, they had everything. They had Thieves World and they had um, Anne McCaffrey. And 
they had this kind of little turntable style with paperback novels just mm. And I read through the whole thing. They had Thieves' World and Anne McCaffrey, as I said, and I don't even remember everything that was in there. Um, they had the first five Elric books with those beautiful Robert Gold covers mm. that I just love. I still love them. Um, they didn't have book six, which was really disappointing. So I read <laughs> Elric of Melnibane all the way through Bane of the Black Sword. Had no idea they were not in writing order i thought yeah. that he wrote them in that order got to bane of the black sword i was a broke junior high kid it was going to be years before i read stormbringer um and kind of held on and and remember fondly high school hitting every used bookstore and garage sale pre-internet trying to find these lost novels and i just read them when i found them so the hawkman books i read in no semblance of an order um <laughs> I read Count Brass first, and 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 uh, eventually, when eBay kind of became a thing, it kind of became the chance to fill in the collection, look for stuff, um, and then when the multiverse.org as a website went up, finding that, finding wonderful people on there. Um, uh, in in particular, shout out to my friend David, who has been just uh, amazing to me who would point me towards books and say, yeah, you're missing this one in your collection or, or no, that's the same book with a different name. Mm. Um, uh, that community just strengthened my ability to collect. And I've got a good wife who is recognizes this is my passion. So recently I finally bit the bullet and brought bought into the media web and it, it, it uh, from Jade oh, design, you managed to get a copy. I did. I had asked you if you had Jade Designs. Uh, for those that are Michael Moorcock fans, oh, Jade Designs is amazing. John Davey mm. runs that, and he has. I can second that. He has everything. I I have a. The problem I found with Jade Designs is now that I think I have pretty much all of Mike's books. Now I want more. I want <laughs> new editions. I think fanatics get that. Um, uh, so now I'm looking through his his website, saying, "Oh, now I need I I need the audio from Sailor on the Seas of Fate, and I need yeah. these comics, and um, I'm excited about that. It's a great site. But yes, you know, I I confess to my wife, I just bought the most expensive book I've ever bought. Here's you know, and I told her the price. Here's how much I paid, and she said, "Well, but you didn't have it. You needed it." So I've been very fortunate that that my uh, my parents, as a kid, knew I was fanatical about him as a writer. Uh, my wife gets that it's it's beyond a passion. Mm. Um, if I had one writer on my bookshelf, you know, after my Bible, it's Michael Moorcock, and I want and I want them all, and I want everything <laughs> that he's written, uh, and I am that fanatical about it. And uh, and and yeah, it, because he touches something in in me, and I think and I think that's why people like you and I can uh, can relate in his books. Is he he passionately taps into that common core of humanity mm -hmm. like the novel the eternal champion i think the eternal champion for example asks that question what does it mean to be human mm. um eric Azay's crime is that he betrays humanity atheist or christian i hope that we're asking that same question what does it mean to actually be human whether or not we think we're made in the image of god we agree that it's good to be human mm. to fight against our base instincts and be better than we are um and I think Christians and atheists have have no trouble discussing this, or or any religion. Let me let me uh, 
at Michael Moorcock, all, all faiths and no faith meets mm. in what it means to be a human being. And I love him for that. Um, interacting with him on the multiverse, which was always amazing that he would interact with his fans. And I had great discussions with him about books like Behold the Man. And I was mm. always humbled that he would say, hey, Jason, how did your Easter service go? And I loved that, that he cared. Um, yeah. He is such a good human being who sought to unite us and not divide us. And if there was ever a message for 2020, certainly in the US, um, but I think worldwide, increasingly we're becoming divisive. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've loved about Mike is he does unite us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, sorry, I, I'm a preacher. Mm -hmm. Give me a soapbox. I will talk for <laughs> hours, and I'm not letting you get a word in edgewise. Well, in this kind of format, that's pure gold. So don't worry about that for a second. Oh well, good then. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I entirely agree. You know, Michael Moorcock is, is is first and foremost a humanist, isn't he? Yes, and, absolutely. And but yeah, and and not in a bad way. Sometimes sometimes the conservative right might might use that as an insult, but I will not. Certainly in the case mm. of Mike. Yeah. Um, Mike is a humanist in, in every good sense of the word, and it's one of the things I love the most about his books. Yeah. It's, I've, I've, I've found throughout my rereading um, that I'm, I'm interpreting the characters in a slightly different way, reading them as a 40... How old am I now? 48. <laughs> I had to think oh, for a second. About the same age, yeah. age I'm 46. Yeah. Um, and... Of course, read, reading them as a teenager, they, they did have quite a profound effect on me. Um, and, and I did them in entirely the wrong order, of course, because the first yeah, Elric I book I was given was the late 60s ace pocketbook edition of Stormbringer. So I read the last Elric book first of all, but it was still pretty mind-blowing um, because I'd, I'd read a little bit of Conan. You know, I'd, okay. I'd, I think yes. I'd read King Cull. I'd, I'd read some other bits and bobs um, of, of fantasy, but... There's something very, very different and very, very distinctive about Moorcock, um, and particularly when now I know Moorcock himself drew certain influences from people like Robert E. Howard as a, as a voracious reader himself, oh, sure. and Edgar Rice Burroughs sure. particularly. But there's something very, very different about Moorcock's protagonists in that they're not yes. the rippling beefcake ubermen of traditional fantasy. They're, it's not Fongor, you know, let's get a bit more obscure. It's not Fongor, it's not Brack the Barbarian, it's not Conan, it's it's not any of these these these, these other kind of... Well, I'll tell you what, if you want to go off down a, down a particularly dark alley, it's not Danus of Regolathium either. There's a story behind that. We'll be covering okay. that on a, on a podcast soon. When I'll hear that later then. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's very, very um, unique, and there's, there's certainly elements of, um, you know, oh, who wrote Gormenghast? My brain's ah, empty. Perk, Mervyn yeah. Peak. So there's that Mervyn Peak type imagery involved, which is very, very different. But what is it about Moorcock's protagonist? So you started off, you kicked off with Elric. What is it about Elric that is so relatable? Elric is... I I love Elric to bits. On, on, a, on a 1 to 10, he's a he's a 12 or a 15 or a 20. How, how high <laughs> can I cheat? Um, I think my... My dislike of Elric is, I'll start with that off, is that he's the one that's the most quoted and everybody, mm. he's the popular one. Um, and I don't like him for the popularity and I don't like him for a lot of the reasons that a lot of other people like. He's not cool to me, it's just the opposite. When I, I have suffered from depression my whole life. Mm. When I encountered Elric in seventh grade, 
for the first time in my life, I felt that there was a character that I could relate to and that the author knew what I was going through. I, I wasn't, I wasn't the smartest seventh grader by any means, but I could see what he was doing. I could see the tales that he was telling. Um, while the gods, while the gods laugh was a breathtaking story. Um, that resonated with me in ways that I that I couldn't imagine and kept me going. Uh, that that quest for meaning in life and what happens when everything that you uh, feel is important to you crumbles around you. And mm. as a Christian, this is important because there are days when life goes well, and there are days as a Christian that I say, "God, if you love me, why is everything falling apart around me? Why why are my parents hanging on by a thread to whether their marriage will work why is um why are we struggling maybe with poverty or or why am i getting picked on in school and i got picked on in school a lot Mm. growing up and so elric was was that safe place in my head i i would retreat i when people say fantasy is a retreat oh it was for me elric was the best of retreats he became I don't know, what's the junior high version of an imaginary friend? I would walk to school and I would talk with him. Um, No, I knew he was fictional, but I felt, I knew Mike wasn't. Hmm. And I knew that Mike was communicating some truths that I couldn't put into words that worked for me. So I like Elric, but I'm not sure that I like him for the way that everybody does. Um, Elric is my spirit animal, if you want to use that phrase. He gets me. No character in fantasy has ever got my feelings of despair and and struggle and as i've gotten older i've learned coping techniques with depression and seen counseling and i have an amazing wife pamela who um helps me through that and 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 i'm grateful for for that but without question mike was a coping technique to deal with the depression that i was struggling with and that's what art should do mm, and i think absolutely. music does that typically yeah. um uh, poetry does that but a lot of times fiction isn't seen to do that and i like that when people talk you, you mentioned that you started with stormbringer i like when people have described stormbringer as a heavy metal novel i kind of get it because there is a musical tone mm. to so many of mike's books they resonate almost not like writing, but like music. Mm. Um, I love Elric, and then I love the uh, the Oswald Bastable books, The Nomad of Time, um, other favorites because of that struggle of everything's falling apart around me. I may not even be able to stop that, but what kind of a person will I be as it's happening? Mm. And man, that is a message for everybody. Wherever you fall on left or right faith issues everybody has to ask those questions and that's why it's humanism it's the core of what it means to be human Hmm. man regardless of religion or politics we're all dealing with that yeah so yeah elric elric was my first um i think he's the most relatable i think for me bastable is my second most relatable and it's a toss-up which one i love more Hmm. But all of his books are related, and right, they're the same character. So yeah. I don't have to pick a favorite. That's um, right. I I love that he did that. We're just talking about the Eternal Champion, and and I what a 
what a brilliant concept. What I think is so funny is that so many people that play Warhammer and Dungeons and Dragons and so many other things do not realize how pivotal, how prolific um, Michael Moorcock's works were to mm. everything that they understand about gaming and fantasy, law and chaos, the multiverse, um, microprocessors in the Sundered World, mm -hmm. um, cyberpunk with, with Jerry Cornelius, all these concepts that he was, well, steampunk, um, I is Bastable the first alternate universe timeline novel uh, as Warlord of the Air. I mean, Frankenstein is uh, uh, is steampunk, but alternate reality with zeppelins and rivets. And yeah. Isn't that, I mean, at so many levels, Mike's books are pivotal to where everybody in fantasy and science fiction is regardless of genre. Mm. Um, and yet I'm always amazed in the U.S. how few people know his works. And I find that so very sad. And he's still alive. It's not like we're talking about someone from Lord Nunsany or somebody from, from ages ago. Mm -hmm. He's still writing. Yeah. Um, and yet yeah. I find myself always giving away books to people who've never heard of him. Yeah. And I do. I, I love finding a book just to purchase it for on the cheap so I can give it to a friend. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I'm it's, evangelistic about Mike's books. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's very interesting as well that in the UK, and of course he's a British author, what, what I'm finding is um, increasingly um, difficult to take <laughs> when, you're, when you're a hardcore fan of something, is just how unknown he is, he is. more broadly. And considering that Golanks have um, his entire Eternal Champion range available and they published them several years ago, the major book chains in, in the UK, Waterstones is one of them. If you go in Waterstones, you will not see a Michael Mocock book on the shelf. I, You'll see William I'll, Gibson. You'll see sure. Neuromancer still in print. You'll see um, uh, Tolkien coming out of your ear rolls. But, yeah, for whatever reason, you just do not see Michael Mocock in mainstream British booksellers. And the real shame of it is that We've got to that point now where, unlike 20, 25 years ago, when I was still seeking out the the editions, <laughs> I think by the time I was 25, I had most of his books, but I was always chasing down that, that other Mayflower edition or, or whatever right, right. else. Absolutely. In those days, he was ubiquitous in secondhand oh, bookshops yeah, and, sure. and charity stores, or Goodwill, as you would call, call them in, in, in the States. Yeah. Just, it was everywhere. And it's from time to time now I'll go in a second-hand bookshop or a friend will send me a picture of a second-hand bookshop in some obscure northern British place like Morecambe and there'll be a big pile of Grafton and Mayflower um, yeah. 70s editions and, and it's, it's wonderful. It's like going back in time. But we're, we're in that sad situation now where charity shops are all overrun with Dan Brown and Fifty Shades of Grey novels in, in triplicate and and very little else and preach yeah it's, <laughs> it's, it's the same here it's the same. <laughs> what yeah that's a terrible it, thought no but that's nationwide that's, that's sorry that's uh, international it yeah. is international yeah it's, yeah it's it's very frustrating and um you know i work in the line of work where we have and this is a terrible modern expression and, and, and an example of where we are in the world but we have team huddles in inverted commas oh yeah and our yeah, team can you know it consists of about 40 people and, you know, occasionally on these huddles, there'll be some conversation, you know, something to lighten the mood, what's made you smile this week or something like that. And the, the podcast come up a, a couple of times and no, 40 people, not one of them has heard of Michael Moorcock. Not That's one. It. 40 English people, 
ranging in age from mid twenties <sighs> to fifty odd. Not one of them has heard of Michael Mocock, but they've all heard of The Witcher. Well, yes. Yeah. Uh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> that, that kid, we were going to get an Elric show. Yeah. And then my understanding is The Witcher came out, and then mm. people said, "Oh, it's too much like The Witcher," and mm. and killed our Elric show. Oh, I would give anything for that. Yeah, there's, I think there's still some effort being made by the BBC and, a, and an independent production company to do the history of the Rune stuff. And I think that would be a great opening. I, the Elric story is dark and mm. it is adult in ways. Um, you know, there's some bad things. Spoilers: Count Smeorgan dies pretty pretty <laughs> tragically. Um, there, are, there, and, and and that death hit me hard because I liked the character. Yeah. Um, the the Elric story is dark. It might be a hard sell. Hawkmoon is very noble, I feel, and very now the first four books, the second three get really surreal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Ilion of Garethorm and Quest for Tain Lorne are. are pretty uh, crazy reads at times and i love them don't get me wrong but uh i think i think hawkmoon and Corum would be easier to start off with maybe hawkmoon first and then maybe Corum before i would do elric if it was me trying to tell these stories i would see how hawkmoon went over if it went over well try Corum, mm. um and then oh, yeah and then and then when you've prepped people for oh this is great fiction um well, here's Elric, and here's Sailor on the Seas of Fate, and we're going to bring these characters back, and oh, by the way, they're the same. Yeah. Um, I think that could be a lot. Of, well, and that's where with, with hey, the five Doctors and, and the three Doctors and Time yeah. Crash and other episodes, yeah. I think that people would enjoy that. The, the, there's, there is now precedence for this in, in film and television, isn't there? Yes. Uh, and oh, there is. There what is. would be really so wonderful is if you got somebody who could do the Michael Moorcock Televisual or cinematic universe where you build oh, up. That, that's what I would. The do. Tower of Validian Gosnazdiaka, whatever it's called. Yes. Is that? Did I get that right? I vanishing so. Tower. Yeah, the yeah. Vanishing Tower. Yeah. Or whatever uh, we it, call it, it, it would be absolutely wonderful, and it's it's um, it's it's interesting that you mention Stormbringer being described as a, a like a heavy metal novel. Right. Uh, and, I read. Yeah, I read I that. Think that's recently. absolutely true. Yeah, it's, it's been a while since I read it, but when I first read that, when I was given to, given it by Pops, I was probably I don't know eleven, twelve years old or whatever. And at the time, I was just getting into Iron Maiden and you know oh. the, the new wave of British heavy metal. So it's it's absolutely correct. The pace of Stormbringer, and I think it's true of a lot of his his sixties output. It's it's fast, rhythmic. It is built to a pattern. And um, it, it, is. It, it comes in rushes. And that's what it, I loved about heavy metal. And that's what... Well, yeah, which that, is a And that's why that appeals artistic. to me. And I think Warlord of the Air is very, very similar in the, in the way that that's constructed as well. I, and so yeah. kind of picking up on all these new characters and, and you, you've mentioned Hawkmoon and Corum, I think much as I loved Elric, I think I loved the Elric stories because of that like heavy metal. For me, there's, Elric's associated with prog rock, but for me... The Elric stories are Diamond Head and Iron Maiden and, and, okay. and that fast-paced yeah. rush of, of of visceral descriptions of battle, um, and with the interesting characters, with the psychedelic elements kind of thrown in for good measure, and, and with a, a really complex, unusual protagonist. And when we and get I onto think, the sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say, I remember your 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 first 
podcast, you guys uh, uh, laughed about Elric's description in all his Technicolor glory. There's nothing goth about the <laughs> no. outfit he's wearing. It's it's awful. It it, it would make Colin Baker blush. Yeah. Um. It's so colorful. And and I think, but I think that that shows Mike's mindset. Mm. Um. It was Technicolor. It was Jimi Hendrix. It was this crazy level of over the top bright music. Um, And that's why Elric was so bright. Now for me with the gold covers, I think the music was in my head much more dark and depressive. Mm. Um, uh, Susie and the Banshees probably I'm my wife and I met at a goth industrial nightclub. So for me, my, my music background is leans more towards the goth Mm. And Elric was very goth, but that's that's more the gold covers than Mike's descriptions. Mike's descriptions are very colorful, yeah. but then maybe the contrast of an albino in the U.S. we pronounce it albino. Mm-hmm. Um, the the contrast between an albino hero and a black sword created these monochrome covers yeah. that I don't think was what Mike was envisioning. No, the Robert Gold covers. He, 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 Elric is very still, very oh, regal, yeah. very pensive. Very, yes. Whereas I had the Grafton Stroke Panther covers with Michael Whelan, where for the most part he was very not particularly well dressed. <laughs> right, but, and, and, but and colourful. Generally showing his thighs off and parts of his chest. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, so that kind of that massive uh, gothic take on uh, on, Mark, on on Elric. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It, it's more about the tone of Elric's character rather than certainly the visual approach to Elric's character or the visualization. Well it's, phrased. It, yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting that um, once again, if we go back to his his impact on the fantasy genre, not just Mocock but Elric himself. I've had some commissions done by an artist called Clint Langley. I you've shown those on Twitter. Yeah, and um, he's, he's he's a, a very well known two thousand AD artist. Um, he's done a lot of work for things. He's done work for Warhammer, for Warhammer, for Black Library Comics. He's created the visualization of um, really, really popular characters within the Warhammer universe. And the most popular one, he's, when I spoke to him the, the first time I met him at a convention, he said he just burst in directly on Elric. And mm. I was the first person who'd ever asked him to, to do an Elric commission, oh, wow. and he was absolutely delighted to do it. So it's that, that, that influence is just shot through everything. It's shot through music, it's shot through art, it it's shot through, um, well, more contemporary, I suppose, fantasy fiction. You know, it's, 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 it's no accident, I don't think, that the Targaryens in, in Game of Thrones have platinum hair and road dragons I... and, and engaged in slightly dubious relationships with their, <laughs> with well, their and, and... siblings or cousins. And that's yeah. where people don't know where this comes from. If you talk about mm. Law and Chaos, people think Dungeons and Dragons, but it D&D took it from Mike. Um, and I think, so to be fair, images. to Gary Gygax, in his Appendix N, he did direct, at least directly no, acknowledge. But nobody, um, unlike but nobody some reads other people the appendix. who perhaps yeah. picked that stuff up further down the line. Yeah, nobody reads the appendices anymore. Mm. And so Gary acknowledged that, but after Gary, people forgot um, where the source material came from. And that's not just, you know, Conan has been reasonably popular. It, certainly in the U.S., Arnold Schwarzenegger very much popularized uh, Conan, and, yeah. and Kevin Sorbo is cool. But, but Conan um, suffered the same 
depredations as Elric, hasn't he? He did. In, in, um, in Conan the, is just a thug. These he's a thug with a sword. These he's days. a thug he, in he a, contemplative... a fairy nappy. Yeah. The, the who, does, contempl- who doesn't wear clothes or armor? He just runs around in a fairy nappy and punches camels, and yeah. and that's well phrased. That's, <laughs> that's the pop culture picture. It is of Conan, and it's it's so far removed. It is from the material. Um, the the. What I, I I came to Robert Howard rather late, and then was stunned with how intelligently it's written. Mm. You, you, I expected Hulk smash, <laughs> and instead yeah. got the single most philosophical uh, character. And 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 in that, I see a, I, I see something that relates to Elric. When you're reading an Elric fight scene or a Conan fight scene, the point isn't the blood. The point is the angst that the that that the that Elric that Coram mm. that that Conan are going through. Is this all I'm meant to be? Why is life so cheap? You have these questions of what it means to defend yourself versus take someone else's life. Yeah. You find that in in all of these good writers, and that's why I say it's not in a way an escape. I don't. Michael Moorcock is not light reading. Conan by Howard, is not light reading. Now, later writers cheapened it to Hulk smash. Mm. Conan wades through a sea of bodies, gore everywhere. He rescues the princess. We're done. Mm. But And that's what the movie, frankly, the Conan movies felt like that yeah. because you didn't get the internal monologue. But that internal struggle is what I love so much about the older writers, and we've lost so much of that. Mm. in in so much modern fantasy um without question i think one of the best things it's mike's nonfiction. it's london peculiar it's into the media web it's his book with james cawthorn um hundred best fantasy yeah that let you know it reminds you what fantasy used to be mm. and then what fantasy should be um and so when he talks about J.G. Ballard or China Meville or, 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 or any number of other writers and tells you this is why these are superior to so much of the schlock that's still out there, you can see – I mean he argues you through it and you're reminded what the purpose of fantasy was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not that you can't read escape novels, fanfic – um, generic Doctor Who, Star Trek, Magic the Gathering, vampire novels, whatever. There's nothing wrong with those, but they don't fulfill the same function that um, uh, uh, Fafford and the Grey Mouse or Elric, Conan, that these novels did more. They pushed things more. It wasn't pure escapism. Mike sucked me in. I went to him for escapism, and then he taught me lessons on humanism that changed my life Mm. and changed how I see the world. Um, And I love him for that. Um, And I didn't even know it was happening. Mm. Um, I I can't imagine what I would be like if I hadn't read, what has he written, 100 books now? Um, Something like that. Some, you know, nearly a nearly a hundred books later or whatever the number is, uh, man, yeah, that has changed me, um, profoundly. And I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a really good note to end this discussion on. Um, Sounds good. It's been absolutely great to talk to you and I, man, I, I hope you. we do it again. We would, when you're ready, when time comes down, I'm up for it. But, uh, 
I also, you know, life is life. We'll see where we're at in 2021, right? Absolutely. Thanks. Really hey, appreciate no, you taking the time. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, happy birthday to Michael Moorcock and Phil. Many happy returns. Happy birthday! <laughs> Away, foul limbs! By the beard of Odin, uh, your wonderfully, gorgeously hirsute other half, Andy, tells me it's your birthday, Phil, and you share it with the big man himself. So, without further ado, it's me, Niss. I'd like to wish you... Happy birthday, and a happy birthday to Mr. Moorcock. And here's my halfling with a little message for you as well. Happy birthday, Phil! <laughs> you take care and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Massive thanks for those last greetings to Clarkie and the Imps. Uh, apparently also Welsh's greatest skiffle group of the 1950s, I hear. And to Nis and Inaya. Phil is really delighted with that, Inaya. The most energetic birthday greeting she's had, putting me to shame. And thanks to all of our contributors on this show. The Pastor, Simon Perrins, Robert McMillan, Jim Kirkland, Hussein, Nathan from Coram, check out his band camp. Ralph from the Fixed Plasm podcast, and to Lord Samper. As a result of that wonderful message, I now formally declare December the 18th the official birthday of Breakfast in the Ruins. It's fitting, really, as we had a lovely present this week in the shape of the show reaching and exceeding 10,000 downloads. And as ever, massive thanks to all of our patrons, including two new ones. Graham, joining our troop of Jugaderos, and, emerging from the stuff of chaos, Joe Monty. Graham dropped us a line to say, I got into Moorcock when I was in my early teens, 30 odd years ago, via a friend of mine who also got me into RPGs. He was into Hawkwind and thought I'd be into Moorcock fiction. I then got really into playing the Stormbringer role-playing game. Wish I still had the rule books; they go for a small fortune these days. Over the years, I've been devouring his books. I have a soft spot for the Oswald Bastable series of stories, and I also love Behold the Man and The Black Corridor, which are quite different, I feel, to his fantasy works. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Graham. Graham, as it happens, is a purveyor of fine folk music and sea shanties. Check out his gear at duckpondsailors.bandcamp.com and also on SoundCloud. So, thanks as always to our chaos engineers, desperately trying to avoid Brute of Lashmar's appalling Christmas baking without upsetting him. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Fred, Dave, Jim, John Lays, John Watt, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, Robbo, Malpertwee, and Ben. And to our swish and svelte jugaderos, all cheating at cards really badly because they're all fucked up on Advocan Lemonade. Clarky, Craig, Loz, Matthew, Randall, Steve, Tom, Ian, Mark, Alex, and of course Graham. And to our patron demons, Master Piconti, Lord Norman, Baker on the Rocks, The Lapsed Gamer, Dreadmort Men, Sir Neil of Burton, The Destiny Knight, Robert, Paragraphus, Pandemonium, Macmillan, and last but not least, to new arrival, Joe Monty. 
Thanks for all of your support and the great conversations we've had. It's been a really weird year, but this experience has been overwhelmingly positive and a source of great therapy. You know, along with buying too many books that I don't have time to read. Phil and I, and all the gang in Team Ruins, wish Mike a happy birthday, and we wish you and all of our listeners a very Merry Christmas and a fabulous New Year. Finally, as I mentioned briefly in the intro, I'm delighted to be able to showcase the work of Chaos Engineer Dave, aka singer-songwriter and multiple instrumentalist, Cernus. Now, interestingly, the O in Cernus has an umlaut, which means I can deliberately pronounce it whole-style with merry abandon. Cernus. Dave dropped me a line about his debut release, Worlds Undreamed Of. Hey there, well, finally I have it, the fully mixed and mastered EP. I've just released it on Bandcamp, and it's coming to every other streaming service on the planet soon, thanks to DistroKid. The song, The Eternal Champion, deals with a lot of the common themes found in Mocock's Eternal Champion stories, such as lamenting the warmongering, pointless brutality of the human race, as it strives to dominate the Earth in an entropic universe pulled apart by two opposing forces. Narratively, the lyrics and the vocal delivery are meant to convey Dacre's internal monologues in verses as a sort of detached, cold droning, before his consciousness regains control and he interrupts with impassioned pleas in the choruses and the middle verse. I have to say, Dave, this kind of stoner, acid-drenched noise prog is right up my street. And you can find Dave's gear at sonusrocks.bandcamp.com and he's on Instagram as sonusrocks. The full nine-minute glory of the Eternal Champion by Cernus will play us out in a few moments. Right, that's about it from me. Gerard Arthur Connolly remains on his mid-season break, but he'll be back next year when he'll experience the smells and tastes of the mysterious Baker on the Rocks. Before I go, don't forget you can follow and gab us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us, breakfastruinsoutlook.com. The blog is at breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and we're out there on most podcatchers. If you do have a favourite and we're not on it, drop me a line, and I'll see if I can sort it. But meanwhile, stay safe, and I'll see you soon on the Moonbeam Roads. <laughs>